Okay. Well, we are continuing our look at what lies ahead and really enjoying uh, just thinking through the details related to the tribulation. And uh, so uh, I want to remind you before we get started that uh, on Wednesday nights we have a a huge following that is uh, live streaming and, and packed house here in the building for our series on what in the world is going on. And uh, last Wednesday, part four of that was completed and is now available both as a podcast and as a video. So I encourage you to check that out. Next, this coming Wednesday, I haven't promoted this yet, but my topic is going to be, we're going to spend the whole time talking about preparedness and give some practical tips and suggestions on, on just about every topic you can think of related to how we can prepare for what might be coming. My thinking is after four sessions, we've pretty much made the case, and now we want to answer the so what question. What do we do with this information? How do we respond? So look forward to that next Wednesday. As far as this morning, our series continues on what lies ahead, and if you don't have the book and would like the book, if you're here, you can pick one up from the back table. Uh, If you're online, you can go to notbyworks.org and uh, get one there from the online uh, store. So we're talking about the tribulation. And we uh, pointed out that the tribulation refers to that seven-year period uh, highlighted in yellow here that will immediately precede the return of our Lord uh, to establish the long-awaited Messianic kingdom. A little bit later this morning in our worship hour, we're going to be looking at a Messianic psalm. If you remember from our opening of the Psalms series a couple of weeks ago, a Messianic psalm is a psalm that uh, points to prophetically the coming of the Messiah to take the throne and rule and reign over the earthly kingdom. And most of the Old Testament, especially once you get into uh, you know, Genesis 12 and beyond, speaks of this future time of a global kingdom ruled and reigned by the seed of the ultimate seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so now many people today uh, don't properly interpret the Old Testament. They don't look at the Old Testament in its you know, literal historical uh, context. They tend to read the church back into the Old Testament, and therefore they spiritualize all of the prophecies and promises made uh, to Israel. But the Old Testament, uh, in its plain normal sense, emphasizes the national promises to Israel. And one of those is this future time of judgment, that this morning we're going to talk about the purposes of that, uh, and they're in its multifaceted the purposes of the tribulation according to Scripture. But one of the one of those purposes is to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so everything in terms of the biblical record really culminates with the return of Christ, as you see that on the right hand side of the screen, that downward arrow, uh, when he comes back and establishes this long-awaited kingdom. So that's uh, been put on hold for now, and the Bible tells us, it talks about that uh, in the New Testament and in Romans. We're going to look at that passage here in a second. But uh, it doesn't mean that those promises will not be fulfilled. The church has not replaced Israel. God has not forsaken His unconditional covenant with Israel, and we can count on the fact that God will come back and make all things new. So the Bible really, uh, as I've said many times, comes full circle Uh, from a pre-fall state of sinless perfection to the curse of sin and all that comes with it to ultimately redemption and then regeneration and making all things new. So uh, we are 
uh, as I've talked about on Wednesday nights, I believe right on the cusp or the brink of a return to a globalist one world system, first to be led by the Antichrist. Uh, well, he will lead it for seven years, as indicated on this, uh, in this yellow portion here. You notice the uh, seven-year tribulation begins with the unveiling of the Antichrist. He takes the throne uh, at the midpoint. He uh, violates his treaty with Israel and sets himself up as God, demands that he be worshipped, uh, basically walks into the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. Uh, that event is called the Abomination of Desolation. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Uh, and then uh, he rules for another three and a half years in a reign of terror in which he's persecuting Jews and Christians who are alive during that time. But then uh, he is defeated at the Battle of Armageddon when Christ comes back and both the Antichrist and the false prophet, who is the second in command in this satanic regime, are cast into the lake of fire. Um, so we know we're headed towards a global government. Uh, we don't know uh, whether that global government will already be in place when the Antichrist comes. I've mentioned this Wednesday that I've taught for years that it probably will be. In other words, the Antichrist doesn't inaugurate a one-world system. He takes the helm of a one-world system that is already in place. Uh, can't prove that scripturally, but we certainly can prove scripturally that nothing uh, prevents the one world government from already being in place. There's nothing in scripture that says the one world government begins with the Antichrist. It simply says he takes the helm of it. And so we don't know when the rapture is going to occur and the Lord's going to rescue us. Um, and so we have to assume as we look at the signs of the times and the geopolitical events and all the things that are going on around us that if the Lord tarries his coming, it's, it's pretty likely we're going to be in a one world system. Um, every nation has signed on to the UN Agenda 2030. All of the global leaders are uh, either paid or played and part of the system, uh, certainly all of the major uh, world leaders. And it just seems like we are rapidly heading towards that one world system. Now, as we've talked about on Wednesdays, the one thing standing in the way, uh, I mean, obviously there are a lot of things, God's sovereignty, God's timetable, the praying believers and the Spirit of God moving on the face of the earth, a lot of things that we could point to. But from a human perspective, the one thing that is standing in the way of them fully going full bore with this one world system and actually having a world dictator uh, is the United States of America. And so that is why there's so much attention right now globally on this country, and they are trying to bring us down uh, in a number of ways. We talked about that uh, last Wednesday. Uh, so again, we, we don't know. We pray, Lord, come. You know, come, Lord Jesus. Today would be wonderful. If so, then, uh, then very quickly after the rapture, the one world government would come into being, and then the Antichrist would rise to popularity and become the leader of it. And uh, that's one scenario. But if the Lord tarries is coming, we also may be, be alive when all of that happens. And so we just need to think through these things. But uh, regardless... This seven-year tribulation is packed full of biblical prophetic events that, that unfold. And we're going to kind of walk through those in time. But this morning, to sort of make the case, we want to talk about uh, the purposes. Where does this tribulation period fit in God's plan of the ages? And, and we, we see at least six things that God's Word, that I find in God's Word, tells us plainly are the reason for the tribulation. 
So just to uh, review, and we won't go through this, I just want to tell you what we've done. We talked about 20 Old Testament designations of the tribulation. You can go back and watch, uh, watch those uh, things, uh, th that video from the first uh, two or three weeks ago. And then we got into the New Testament, and we talked about how the tribulation is really a key focus of several passages in the New Testament. Chief among them is the Olivet Discourse. And we've spent quite a bit of time, I think nine weeks on the Olivet Discourse in our Sunday morning study. You can go back and watch those videos at notbyworks.org if you're interested. Uh, and then we looked at ten designations from the New Testament for the tribulation. And uh, many of them are overlapping with the Old Testament terminology, things like the wrath of the Lord, the great day of the wrath, and so forth, tribulation, birth pangs as Old and New Testament alike. Um, and remember we said the birth pangs in Scripture contextually always refers to those events during the seven years. In other words, the seven years are the birth pangs until the birth, metaphorically, which is the return of Christ. Um, so uh, a lot of times people look at the New Testament usage of that term in the Olivet Discourse and assume that today is the day of birth pangs. But um, the context of the term in the Old Testament in its relation to Israel, and remember the Olivet Discourse is all about Israel. He's, Jesus is answering the question but from the Jews. It was before the church ever was created. So the church wasn't even in existence when Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. Uh, so it has nothing to do with the church. Uh, but he's answering the question, you know, how can Israel know that your coming is near? What, what are the signs? What, what will be the end of the age? And so he's talking about the tribulation, and he calls that birth pangs. It would be strange indeed for a birth pangs analogy to be used in reference to a 2,000-year period. And even though at the time when Jesus was giving this teaching, uh, nobody on earth knew that the church age would go on at least 2,000 years, God knew. <laughs> And God would it'd be strange for God to be giving revelation in his word using an analogy of a birth pang to refer to our present age when, you know, I mean, can you imagine as a woman an indefinite perpetual birth pang wondering when is it ever going to end? No, birth pangs by definition have to have a decided upon end, right? I mean, a woman doesn't go into labor and think, boy, I hope sometime in the next 2,000 years I have a child. You know, so the church age is undefined. The church age is a mystery. It does not have a definite ending point. Only God knows. But the tribulation definitely has a, a defined period of time. It's seven years. We even get down to the days, 1260 days for half of it. Um, you know, time, times, and half a time. You see Daniel. You see Revelation. It's seven years, period. So the birth pangs analogy is quite, uh, you know, apropos. And it's beyond that, it's just that's what the way the Bible uses the term. Uh, so we talked about the tribulation in relation to the book of Revelation. And we said that basically chapters 6 to 18 uh, deal with the tribulation period. Uh, Christ comes back at the end in chapter 19 and uh, at the Battle of Armageddon and sets up his kingdom. And the rest of Revelation chapters 20 to 22 deal with the kingdom either in the millennial phase or the eternal state. And remember the difference between the millennial phase and the eternal state has to do with which earth it's on. The millennial phase is on the present earth. And even though it will be getting better, it will be largely reformed because Christ himself is ruling it from the throne in Jerusalem. And there'll be longevity of life. There'll be perfect justice. There'll be a lot of uh, no accidental death or injustices like that. Uh, at some point in this series, we're going to get to characteristics of the millennium. But uh, it's still the old earth. 
by contrast, the new heavens, the new earth, is the portion of the kingdom that continues on when time shall be no more. There's no more night. There's no more 24-hour days. There's, it's, it's in eternity. And, uh, and so that's what we really look forward to ultimately. So we see the same thing in this chart of Revelation, reflecting the kingdom as a whole, but we do need to understand there are two phases uh, to the kingdom. So uh, this whole period, of course, is called the wrath of God. That's one of the most common names for the tribulation. But we want to move now into some purposes for the tribulation. According to God's plan of the ages, why do we need this seven-year period? And the first one is, uh, and, and the biggest one, is to complete the decreed period of Israel's hardening as punishment for her rejection of the Messianic program. One of the things you notice about Israel as you read the Old Testament is that time and again, God provided for them and Israel rebelled. Provision, rebelling. Provision, rebelling. Uh, from the time they got out of Egypt, right, in the wilderness. It wasn't very long at all before they were grumbling, complaining, showed a lack of faith and unbelief. And uh, consequently, the uh, wilderness generation, the ones that left Egypt, didn't get to experience the blessing of the promised land. Doesn't mean they didn't go to heaven when they died. The promised land is not the same thing as heaven. The promised land was an earthly blessing of milk and honey. Uh, but... Uh, the, the, the original generation didn't get to experience that because of their lack of faith. And then we could just walk through Israel's history and see in good times and bad, through prophets, priests, kings, and judges, they sometimes followed the Lord, sometimes didn't. And God's covenant of an ultimate kingdom is unconditional. It's going to happen. But the timing of it uh, ebbs and flows in terms of Israel's rebellion or uh, obedience. And we see that, say, for example, in Deuteronomy 30 with the blessings and cursings passages. And the, the blessings and cursings uh, paradigm that God outlines for Israel was not intended to be taken as a condition for receiving the Abrahamic promise. It was just a matter of time. So from God's perspective, some, and this is the amazing thing about our God, somehow he's working together all things, even our mistakes and Israel's mistakes and so forth, to bring about his plan. But he can both, for example, simultaneously use a pagan nation to bring judgment upon Israel and then turn around and judge that pagan nation for punishing Israel. You know, that's just the way God works. And, and so we don't understand it. We don't have the mind of God. And just a little bit, we're going to get to Romans chapter uh, 9 through 11. And Paul discusses that beautifully at the end of chapter 11, how, you know, who, you know, who has wisdom that can stand against God? We don't, we, we don't necessarily understand it, and we're not entitled to understand it. We just believe it because God's word says it. And so throughout the ages, you see the prophets basically talking about a period of time when Israel will be in disobedience, but ultimately, in belief, the nation of Israel will finally, once for all, believe the good news, have the kind of faith that their father Abraham had, Genesis 15, 6, when he believed God and he was therefore accredited righteousness, and because of their faith, they will be regathered into the land, and the kingdom will commence. So we see that several prophets that talk about this. Isaiah says you know, to the, the Jewish people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Their hearts are dull. And, and that's the, they're still in that period today. Um, we see him go on, uh, How long, uh, Isaiah says, how long will this happen? Well, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. That's a reference to the results of the tribulation period. By the time the seven years of judgment are over, the 
world's going to be in, in utter desolation. Um, and then uh, John, Jesus says this, but although they did not, uh, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Remember John's, one of John's themes as he came into his own Israel, but his own did not receive him, John 1. Uh, they did not believe him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember, Israel didn't believe. They didn't believe, receive him as the Messiah. They crowned him with thorns. They rejected him. They stumbled, right? All of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. So none of this was uh, caught God off guard. But from a human linear perspective, there was a cause and effect hypothetically, now, now we know this wasn't going to be the case because we have the whole counsel of God right now. We have the full story. But if you were alive in the first century before the Word of God had been collected into 66 books and distributed, uh, you would have wondered, and you would have been correct to say, had Israel received the king and crowned him as king of kings and lord of lords, that we would have ushered right into the kingdom age in the first century. Uh, hypothetically. But... Uh, that God knew that wasn't going to happen, and we we now have the full picture that God had intended for to to have this creation of the church age, which the New Testament tells us about. Paul calls it a mystery. It was something previously unforetold, but now being revealed by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the human authors. And that church age is the age in which we live now. But that does not mean that the plan for Israel was shunned and set aside as we're going to see in just a moment so uh in fact let's do that now romans chapter 11 if you want to turn there i want to kind of spend a little bit of time in romans uh, this is uh, one of those passages that is often um, abused and misunderstood um, so before we get to this verse let's just kind of put it in context here now First of all, let's let's put Romans in context. Romans is uh, an amazing book. We get so much rich truth about uh, our justification and our salvation by grace through faith. Um, it's obviously Paul's magnum opus. It was not the first letter he wrote uh, chronologically, even though it's the first one of Paul's letters that comes up in the New Testament, the way it's canonically ordered. But what was the first book that Paul wrote chronologically. Anybody remember? Galatians. Galatians, right? And so he wrote Galatians in 48 and 49. Then he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. And then he wrote First Corinthians. And then he wrote Romans in around 56, 57. But it still constitutes sort of the, the great treatise about grace and, and Paul's magnum opus. And uh, so... If you outline the whole book, there are 16 chapters in our English Bibles of Romans. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original letters. It was just one long letter. But we've broken it up into 16 chapters, and it's pretty easy to outline that way. The first three chapters are all about man's sinfulness and how man uh, is without excuse, that God has made himself known to uh, people everywhere through nature and providence and the like. And so anybody that cries out to the Creator God, God will make sure that they receive special revelation and details about the gospel but the bottom line is we're all filthy dirty rotten sinners romans 3 10 there's none righteous no not one romans 3 23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god then in chapters 4 and 5 he he presents the solution 
but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So 4 and 5 is all about the good news and the provision and the solution for our desperate predicament. And then having presented the solution to the penalty of sin and telling you how to get it, which is by faith. For example, Romans 5 verse 1 says we are justified by faith and have peace with God. Um, you know, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were as soon as Christ died for us. Verse 10, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life and so on and so forth. And great section there at the end of chapter 5 comparing the first Adam who brought sin into the world to the second Adam, Christ, who brought life into the world. But then uh, chapters 6 to 8 are written primarily directed toward the believer, and now that you've believed in Christ and been born again, and the penalty of sin has been removed, now how should you function? And it gives a lot of practical advice about walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh and, uh, you know, uh, those types of things. And so... Uh, chapter 7, for example, in Romans is where Paul t talks about that struggle. He says, oh, you know, the things that I know I should do, I don't do. He's talking about his life as a believer, yet the things that I uh, know I shouldn't do, I end up doing those things. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will uh, rescue me from this body of death? And then the key in chapter 6 through 8 is that we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We need to consider our new life in Christ. That's the first command you get to in the book of Romans, is Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. And so that's the all about believers. So he's talked about man is utterly sinful, 1 to 3. God provided the solution because of his great love, 4 and 5. Believers should live like the new man that they are and walk by faith, 6 to 8. Then in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about Israel. Because remember... Uh, God's not through with Israel. And in the first century, 56 AD, he's still writing to a lot of Jewish believers and Jewish unbelievers for that matter. He talks about talks right at the beginning in 116 about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on later on in chapters, I think it's 15 or 16, he points out that the gospel he wants to preach, he can't wait to come to Rome and preach it to people who've never heard it before. So there's there's certainly an evangelistic tone to this letter but all of the new testament books were written for the church edification and uh, since it was written in a jewish context where you know the church was still in its infancy and predominantly jewish in nature people wondered well does all of this mean that god has forsaken his uh his plan for israel and so chapters 9 through 11 address that and then 12 to 16 is all practical uh, sort of closing remarks, just some good timeless truths and principles on how to live the, the Christian life. But we're camped out in chapters 9 through 11, and chapter 9 begins talking about uh, the election of Israel, that God has absolutely not forsaken uh, Israel, that uh, he goes on to say in verse 6, uh, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, not all Jews are going to experience the blessings made to Israel simply because of their heritage they have to believe the gospel only those who believe the gospel are saved jew gentile doesn't matter uh and but he talks about how you know this is god's uh sovereignty it's his plan he is god and he talks all about the election of israel that god chose israel as his chosen nation the apple of his eye and that's not unfair because god is god god can do whatever he wants remember we talked uh recently in our sunday service about psalm 
115, verse 3, our God is in heaven, He does whatever He pleases, right? So a lot of people take chapter 9. I didn't put the chapters in here, but this first bullet here is chapter 9, is the election of Israel. Uh, and they miss the context entirely. And then they, uh, they make it all about individual election. Uh, and Calvinists do this. And I believe in election, but not because of Romans 9. I believe in individual election because of passages like Ephesians 1 and, and others. Uh, but that's a subject for another day. Uh, you can, if you're interested in that, you can look at some of my stuff on Calvinism. But that's not what Romans 9 is, is talking about. He's talking about how God has chosen Israel. Then he goes on to talk about the rejection by Israel in chapter 10. So chapter 10 is all about how they rejected him. Remember, he, he starts out, and we talked about this on a Wednesday night, but you know, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be delivered into the kingdom. He wants them to get their long-awaited promised covenant blessing. But he says, the problem is, they have not believed the gospel. If you skip down to verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then he quotes Isaiah, which we quoted earlier, or Jesus, I think, referenced it. Lord, who has believed our report? So God chose Israel, but Israel rejected. And then guess what? Chapter 11 is all about the deliverance for Israel. So this is such an easy chapter to under, I mean, section to understand if you look at it in its context. God is God. He chose Israel. They rejected him. God, nevertheless, will ultimately deliver them into the kingdom. You get to the end of chapter 11, and uh, he says, uh, the deliverer, verse, uh, or let's start out in verse 25, Romans 11, 25. I don't have it on the screen, but he says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Well, what is that mystery? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we're going to come back to that phrase, fullness of the Gentiles, again. But notice a couple of things. First of all, that reference to blindness. Israel has been essentially in a period of blindness or stupor uh, perpetually since they, the last uh, exile. You know, they... They were brought back into the land, but they still didn't believe, and they still didn't uh, respond in faith to God's covenant promises. And so they've been scattered uh, abroad nationally uh, or globally, and, and they've been still awaiting the future fulfillment and return to the promised land, just as God's Word said they would. So it's a period of blindness right now. But notice he says blindness in part. What does he mean by in part? In what sense today uh, are some Jews not walking in blindness? Anybody know? Like Messianic Jews? Oh, which is another way to say what? Jews who have believe in the, the gospel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there are Jews today who get saved, right? Just like there are Gentiles today that get saved. The whole world, anybody can be saved if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, and trust in Him as the only one who can forgive sin and give you the free gift of eternal life, you're saved. And Paul is one of those. In fact, he points that out in uh, chapter uh, 9. Uh, so uh, there are Jews getting saved today. That's what Paul means when he says blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and then all Israel will be delivered, not saved eternally. I mean, that's also true, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the covenant promise to be delivered into the kingdom. And uh, when will this happen? 
when the deliverer comes out of Zion, quoting Isaiah 59 there. That's Christ. That's why it's cap the deliverer is capitalized, at least in the New King James. It should be capitalized in any English translation. It's a reference to the Messiah. So, so that's, that's what Romans chapters 9 through 11. But one verse that I want to kind of clue in on here in chapter 11 that I think is so fascinating is beginning in verse 11. So in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11, he's talking about Israel's rejection. And, uh, you know, verse 1 says, Has God cast away his people? You know, is, is it over? No. Uh, God still has a plan for Israel. They will be delivered. Um, and then chapter 11, verse 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should utterly fall? In other words, does their rejection of the gospel mean that they missed the opportunity, that they can't get back up again? That's the metaphor. To stumble and then to utterly fall means, you know, you've, you've fallen all the way down and you can't get up, right? And they don't have one of those little buttons to push. Uh, so, and Paul says what? Certainly not. And here's one of the things that he mentions. And this is going back to our, my point here, number one, on purposes of the tribulation, is to complete this decreed period of Israel's hardening. But notice what he says. Uh, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Oh, that's very, very interesting. Uh, and Paul had me previously mentioned this in chapter 10, verse 19, uh, quoting Deuteronomy. He says, But I say, did Israel know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation and move you to anger <coughs> by a foolish nation. So what's going on here? Well, we need to understand the dynamic between Jews and Gentiles. I think that's pretty well known to anybody who reads the, the, the New Testament uh, Gospels and the time of Christ because you see this other disdain from the high and mighty, pious, self-righteous scribes and Pharisees looking down upon the dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles, the unclean. And yet you see Jesus constantly spending time with the unclean because, as he said, it's the sick who need the doctor. And those who don't think they need any change of heart or change of mind don't think they need repentance. He has no you know, time for so he went out to the harlots and the tax collectors and so forth, and he tried to explain to them that they need the righteousness that only Christ can give. And in their humility, they came to faith and they were born again. So, <clears throat> so if you understand that dynamic, this is really powerful. <clears throat> and again, this isn't something new to Paul. He's quoting from the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament prophets, Moses among them, clearly said that God is going to use... <clears throat> Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. And, uh, and that's what he's saying here. That Israel, who rejected the Messiah, if the church, that's you and I, is doing our job, that we're supposed to be doing, we will ignite in Israel, unbelieving Jews, a desire to have what we have. See, the church age is not the fulfillment of God's new covenant program. Now, that's been taught for years, but that's not what the Bible teaches. If you go back and look at the New Covenant promises in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, nothing about what is described as being the promise of the New Covenant is happening today. It's not. 
I know that may sound strange, but just go look it up. For example, in Jeremiah, when the new covenant is enforced, the prophet says, at that time, no one will need to teach his neighbor because everyone will know about the Lord from the least to the greatest. Remember that? That's, that's a new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. Uh, and yet, what's the church age commission? Go and teach your neighbor. So you can't reconcile those two. Uh, we find out in the new covenant blessings that when the new covenant is in force, uh, believers won't sin. The Spirit of God will indwell them and cause them to walk in God's statutes. That's not happening today because Christians still sin, right? So what the church is, is a foreshadowing or a foretaste of the glory to come in the new covenant age, which is the full kingdom age, when the Abrahamic, Davidic, New, and Palestinian covenants all converge and are fulfilled at the coming of Christ. And, but we have similar blessings today that are unique to the church age and have never happened before, such as the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But just because we have a similar blessing doesn't mean it's the, it, it's the same thing as the New Covenant. Uh, you, know, if you, you have to let the New Covenant passages speak for themselves. You don't interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You interpret the Old Testament in its own right. You don't ever read newer revelation, later revelation, back into previous revelation. That would create all sorts of problems, right? Uh, so the, what we have today is in the present church age is a special intimacy with God that will occur in the new co covenant blessing. We have a special relationship with Christ. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have uh, our... In, uh, advocate in at the right hand of the throne of god so but all of this as jews who uh come from generations of people that were distant from god and we've talked a lot about this in our study through hebrews they saw god afar off they had to go through him through human mediaries they had to go through the feasts and the festivals and the rituals today they see us marching boldly into the throne room of god letting our requests be made known having a special intimacy and love with our savior and in theory, if we're living out the Christian life, walking by faith, walking in the Spirit, Jews should see that and essentially say, I want what they have. And indeed, according to the God's plan of the ages, that's precisely what's going to happen. After the church, the bride of Christ is rescued before the great day of the Lord's wrath. Israel will, many, many Jews, not all of them, but many of them will believe the gospel. They'll realize they missed it. They'll say, boy, I wish I was part of that blessing. They'll believe the gospel that's being preached during the tribulation period. And consequently, when Christ comes back, he will regather them supernaturally into the land, as we read about in Matthew 24, uh, 31 and 25. So, uh, so this is what this is saying. And this is just amazing to me. Really, in a, in a day when many theologians and Bible teachers are saying that the church is the end-all, be-all of God's plan. We are living in the kingdom, this kingdom now theology, that the church has replaced Israel. We're all that. We need to remember the church is essentially like the other woman. Not the best metaphor, maybe, but we're the ones that are driving Israel to jealousy, to realize you know, what they missed. And then notice the last part of this verse. Now, if their fall is riches for the world. In other words, if because Israel rejected the Messiah, according to God's sovereign plan, the gospel goes forth to all the ages, and it is made clear that Gentiles can be part of the covenant community. And by the way, that wasn't new. Gentiles have always been invited to be part of the covenant community in the Old Testament. You had proselyte Jews, you know, people who were Gentiles that joined Judaism. So that's always been his plan, 
right? Israel was supposed to cross the Jordan, go into the promised land, and the pagan nations surrounding uh, the land of Canaan, where the, Israel set up their camps, were supposed to see this amazing group of people that testified to the unity of God and come running and saying, tell us more, tell us about your God. But again, one of the many examples of Israel's failure and hardening hearts is they did exactly what God said not to do. They went out into the pagan lands and intermarried with them and joined their culture and adopted their practices and, and did not, it, was, it worked just the opposite. But anyway, so the point of Gentiles becoming part of the family of faith, so to speak, has always been God's plan. But so God, or Romans says here, Paul says, Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, just repeating the same thing in two different ways, then he says, how much more their fullness. In other words, just imagine what an impact it's going to have when Israel gets their act together and comes back to Yahweh, to God. And that's what we see pictured in the millennium. When Jews, Gentiles, the bride of Christ, the church, are all uh, worshiping the one true God in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, who's sitting on the throne. Make sense? So that's one big purpose. So we'll stop there and, and give plenty of time for questions uh, today. But that's the you know one purpose for the uh, tribulation period is to complete this period of time of Israel's hardening. Now, uh, let's we're going to do something different this week, uh, and and uh, perpetually in my sessions on Wednesday and Sunday, I've had. I've had a lot of, not a lot, but occasional feedback online from people who say, man, we really wish we could hear the questions. I like to, I, I try to repeat the questions, but unfortunately some questions are so long that I'm, I'm listening and I'm trying to think about my answer and trying to remember each part of the question that when the person finishes the question, then I jump right into the answer and forget to say the, say the question. So we're going to make sure that any question gets recorded on our videos, uh, and I'm going to ask Dennis to hold that up. So try to keep them fairly succinct uh, because we want to allow time for people. So let's go with uh, Gary first. We want to give everyone plenty of time to ask questions at the very back. If the Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, there never would have been a church age. Is that correct? Again, so, so I think that picked it up. Um, uh, if the ch Jews had received Jesus as the Messiah in the first century, there never would have been a church age. Yes, from a human perspective, thinking linearly from only on our perspective, that's true. We know from God's perspective that Israel, he, pro he prophesied that Israel would reject the Messiah. But yes, that is true. Somebody else up here, hang on. Wait for the mic. We're going to give Dennis a workout here. Um, is, do you think that, that people, you know, in the last part of the tribulation who are, you know, hiding in the rocks like Isaiah 2, like 19 through 22, do you think that's because they aren't, they basically aren't allowed to, to get, to get the, to believe in Jesus after they've got the mark of the beast? No, I think the people hiding in the rocks, at least if you correlate that to Revelation and to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, are b believers who have believed the gospel and are hiding out from the persecution of the Antichrist. 
So they're hiding out. Remember, at the end of chapter 6 of Revelation, it says, you know, hide us from the wrath, uh, you know, that is coming upon us. So they, and, and wrath in, in the book of Revelation, it's the Greek word orge, and it's used both of Satan's wrath and God's wrath, God's divine wrath. Uh, so I think, uh, I mean, hypothetically, it's probably going to be both. It's going to be so chaotic during the tribulation period that I think everyone's going to be suffering in some way or another. People who've taken the mark, and uh, that means they've rejected the gospel, will be victims of a lot of the natural judgments of God, the seal trumpet and bold judgments, the earthquakes, the floods, the poison water, the locusts. So they could be hiding out from that type of thing. But Revelation uh, seems to talk about, and Jesus seems to talk about, the hiding out in caves in reference to believers that are trying to not be persecuted and, and martyred by the Antichrist and his, you know, UN army uh, that are seeking to kill people. Um, so that's why he says those who survive until the end will be the ones that are delivered into the kingdom, Matthew 24, 13. Make sense? Yes? Uh, in, uh, the, in your uh, timeline thing for the, for the tribulation and the end times events, there's a preparation between the rapture and uh, the Antichrist being unveiled. Is there only seven years after the rapture, or is there only seven years after the Antichrist unveiled? Because I know it's always fulfilled to the day, and so which which one of those does uh, start So the fun? seven years begins, according to Daniel 9, 27, with the signing of the peace treaty. That's when the clock starts ticking, and it ends with the return of Christ to establish the kingdom. So the rapture does not start the tribulation period. The rapture ends the church age, the mystery, this period of blindness that we just read about in Romans 11. Uh, sometime after the rapture, the official tribulation will begin with the signing of the peace treaty. That's the reason we put that preparation in there is because those are not the same event. If they're two different events, by definition, there must be a period of time between them. Oh, the Bible is silent as to how long that is, uh, but it does speak of certain things that uh, make the most sense as occurring during that time. And scholars uh, you know, have debated this uh, for years. Uh, in, uh, in my book, I mention, I think, eight different views on when the Battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place. But... Um, I believe, and, and many others believe, it's most likely going to take place during that period of preparation you just asked about. So after the rapture, chaos ensues, the battle of Gog and Magog occurs. Coming out of that battle, the Antichrist gains worldwide fame and notoriety, which propels him into a, a status as world leader. So, Somebody else? Yes, over here. Wow, that's a tough question. What do I think a general Jew, like just your average Jew, uh, would think about Christians? Uh, obviously, I'm not Jewish. Um, I have some Jewish friends, and I wish they were with me right now, some that run Jewish ministries. Um, I mean, um, I think Judaism is a lot like other world religions, where you have people who might check the box Judaism if asked, what's your religion? But other than that, they're not really into it. They're not practicing. They're not, you know, 
they're just that's just their heritage, you know. Um, but for those who are, you know, practicing Jews that you know uh, still follow the Jewish law, uh, I would think they think we're deceived and that we've misidentified the Messiah, and they would have, I would assume, the same type of attitude that the unbelieving Jews of the first century had, that they just think, you know, they, they view Christians and, the, and Christ, or they wouldn't call him the Christ, but Jesus, let's say, they view Jesus as a threat, and uh, they're still looking for the Messiah. I remember sitting by a, a Jew one time on an airplane, and I asked them, uh, if they were still looking for the Messiah, and their answer was, "Yeah, they are," but it was kind of like, like not eagerly at all. The, the tone and the you know idea behind their answer was sort of, "Well, yeah, yeah, he'll probably come. We're kind of kind of keeping one eye out, but it's like they've lost hope, you know." So that's just one little anecdote. But uh, yeah, that would be best guess at, at how they view us. So, anybody else? Okay, well, awesome. Well, thank you uh, for coming. Thank you for watching uh, online. We're going to take a break. Our worship service here in the building will take place at 10, 10 o'clock Mountain Time, 15 minutes or so. For those of you joining by live stream, we will come back on again. It's always a little bit of a guess, but roughly anywhere from 1025 to 1035 in that time frame uh, when we begin the message. All right, thanks and God bless.